Hello, everyone, and welcome to NCEA Podcast. This is Kevin Baxter, the Chief Innovation Officer for NCEA, and we welcome you to the podcast for this week. This week's podcast is sponsored by NWEA. At NWEA, it's their mission to help kids learn, and they do that by providing educators with trusted, accurate insights into where kids are in their learning throughout the year. NWEA's map growth assessments and other educational resources on the Teach, Learn, Grow blog all help to inform a future in which all kids succeed. Learn more today at nwea.org. We are very excited to have Dr. Beth Tarasawa with us. She is the Executive Vice President of Research at NWEA. Uh, she leads NWA's research teams, the Center for School and Student Progress, and the Collaborative for Student Growth. Uh, and her research focus is on issues related to ed educational equity, particularly those concerning social class, race, and linguistic diversity. Beth, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. And um, also, uh, you might be aware that uh, NWA has just put out a report, um, Learning During COVID-19. Uh, and this is um, kind of a bookend report. And Beth, that's where I'm going to start with. Uh, you, you put a report out in April, uh, NWA did, um, on COVID and the impact that, uh, that painted, um, I don't know, just a more concerning potential picture of the learning loss that we might anticipate seeing given the fact that all the students had moved to remote. And then this report comes out after the fall testing window and you found some different results. So just talk a little bit about the April report, just very briefly, and then uh, and then the November report. Sure, yeah, I'm happy to. So um, in the spring, you know, as we pivoted, most schools shut down across the country um, back in March for at least their brick and mortar. Uh, we were, were trying to kind of put our heads together. So I, I work with a bunch of researchers. They're brilliant scholars. So, you know, we kind of lovingly refer to each other as, as the nerd herd. And so, you know, we're, we're really trying to think about the the amount of research that we could bring to bear to, to think about, well, what could the potential impact of prolonged closures be for, for academic achievement and growth? And, you know, we test kids all across the country. So we're a nonprofit organization and we do, you know, typical tests in math and reading. And so we have a, a really good idea of how kids normally perform. We test almost one in four kids across the U.S., so about 12 million kids. And so we have really great data and historical data on how a good part of this country has performed over, over many years. And so, you know, with that kind of in hand, and, and there, I don't know if you happen to see Vivian Singh and some other, uh, you know, kind of democratizing evidence, there was this idea that, you know, kind of the scholars or the classic nerd herd might come out with research a year or two from now talking about the impacts of COVID. And um, that's just not good enough, right? In the same way, I think public health and epidemiologists find this real call for action here, um, even if we didn't have a perfect example or a perfect idea of what COVID could mean, because school closures look quite different under COVID than they would, say, for inclement weather or chronic absenteeism or, or summer learning, we can bring some of those literatures to bear to give us some idea of what we might see uh, for prolonged closures. So that was really the impetus behind the, the April projections that we did. And so we essentially modeled, and so Megan Kufeld, who's our, our lead researcher here, she uh, has done a lot of work in seasonal learning patterns and worked with Doug Downey and, and many others in this space. And so they've kind of got this, you know, these typical summer learning patterns and how we tend to see math declines in those summer months a bit more than reading, and, and we see differences by, by grade level and performance. So we have some estimation, but that's sort of the worst case scenario if you think about a prolonged summer closure with virtually, you know, no instruction. And we know kids did get 
instruction in the spring, uh, you know, in a variety of, of different formats. And so we had done these hypotheses, and in general, kind of just to give you some um, empirical estimates there, we were, we were saying on average we expected kids to come back with about 70% of the learning gains in reading and closer to 50% of the learning gains we would see under normal conditions in math. So that was, that was pretty dire, right, to your point, I think, before, and, and alarming. And they paralleled a lot of others. You know, Credo came out with some based on some summative and, and some modeling, um, and we saw a, a variety of other uh, scholars kind of estimating these, these losses. But it, you know, it, it was difficult to, to really estimate. And it's also, you know, there's kind of on average what it's this impact on kids. But then there also might be some really important subgroup differences. So how might this play out differently for kids in high poverty schools or in, in rural communities or for our English learners or, or kids who might need accessibility or, or accommodations? Um, so there's, a, a you know, no shortage of interesting questions, I guess you would say. And so, you know, that set up some some media attention and we the academic uh, audiences were also interested and so you know we kind of got on the map I guess for for that so then fall you know we, we fast forward and well one I'll say we were kind of expecting to be back in the buildings for the most part in the fall so COVID is going much longer than I think most of us had expected or, or, or really were, were planning for and we also know that you know this fall has every kind of school so some kids are back fully in person some are doing hybrid some are fully remote and that pattern is kind of opening and closing is not consistent still, right? So we know that there's just such differences across the, the country. So it makes it difficult to kind of, you know, say the impact because it, it matters where in those contexts are, are really important. Um, but we did think it was really uh, timely to be bringing, well, well, now with real data in hand, what are we seeing? And, and there's some limitations and caveats that I also really want to make sure that, it, that I underscore. So please feel free to, to interrupt or, or ask for clarity. But um, we have... This fall, again, you know, students assessed with us not as many as they normally would, and also there were some some real differences in the types of schools that tested with us. But we still have a, about 4.4 million kids in this next sample, so it's sizable, it's national, and I'll note for this audience too, this is these are traditional public uh, school kids mm -hmm. in, in this mm -hmm. sample. So and, just really quick, I, that's a, about 8,000 public schools, is that right? Mm -hmm. Somewhere, and about 4 million students, maybe. Yep. So, okay, yep. great. Perfect. Um, and so we looked at how these kids performed, and we asked kind of two questions. So one would be what's called a cross-sectional analysis. So we wanted to look at how kids this fall compared to similar kids of the same grade in the fall before. So different kids at two, you know, two different time points, but both fall, third graders in fall, fourth graders compared to each other in fall. And then the second question we were looking at, well, how has student growth changed when, when schools were physically closed? So we kind of isolated the, the last testing window, which we had was in winter of, of 2020 to this fall. So we have an overtime trend. So we're looking at, looking at how kids were performing in that, that time span relative to kids in, in typical years before. And really quick, Beth, you would, would you normally have a fall, winter, spring testing window? Is that, is that correct in a normal year? Yeah, you know, and, it, it does vary a bit by district. Some districts do fall and winter. Some do okay. fall, winter, and spring. But most of the time, we have three time points for, for majority of our And programs. we just we skipped twenty uh, spring 20, so that's why you've done the winter to the fall. You got it. Yeah, pretty okay. much everything shut down in terms of, you know, summative as well as, as computer adaptive and, and these interim tests. So uh, we use winter, and winter for the most part is January and February, so just before the closure. So it also does a nice job of kind of isolating the COVID mm -hmm. window, if you will. Right. 
Um, so kind of, you know, uh, drum roll for the findings. Uh, we have sort of three big takeaways here. And, and one is that, um, you know, we were seeing growth for most kids in both reading and in math. So I think, you know, this is an important distinction that like, kids are gaining, they're making gains, they just might not be as large as we would see under normal conditions. So kind of this idea of slide, and you know, we, we use it too, um, but it's it's really unfinished learning would kind of be a better, I think, description of it if we want to use some more asset-based language around that. So in general, we're finding, again, most, most kids in math and reading are, are showing gains, um, but in math, they are smaller than we would see under typical conditions. And so reading is almost identical. It was actually um, a, a, a real optimistic and surprising finding, I think, for a lot of us that the that reading weathered pretty well, both in the kind of fall to fall cross-sectional analysis, as well as the, the growth uh, over time. Um, math, we were seeing on average, kids were about five to 10 percentile points lower this year compared to the same grade students last year. Uh, so mathematics there, it, we did see a, a, a lesser of, of gains or a lessening of gains, if you will. Um, but they're still modest or, or moderate, right? So I think that, that that's an important distinction. And then the, the third big takeaway here um, is more of a contextual one, and, and that is that our, our data this year, we have a lot of missing kids. And so there's kind of typical missingness that you would imagine in any data sample where some kids come in, some kids leave, and there's mobility. So that you would see in any given year in our sample about 15% of kids that would, would fall out of that sample. Um, this year, that was closer to 25%. And we did this both at the school and district level as well as individual kids. So we wanted to know, um, you know, if kids were in schools and districts that tested with us at both time points, we would expect them for the most part to be in our sample. So what does that say about the kids that were, were missing in that analysis? And so we call that an attrition analysis. And so our economist, Angela Johnson, was looking really deeply at, at the types of demographics of these kids. And so these demographics were not random. So in, in we were finding patterns where kids that were missing from our data were more likely to be African-American, were more likely to be Hispanic or Latinx, were more likely to be from high poverty schools, and they were more likely to be lower achieving in the first place. So all of this kind of begs that, you know, equity question that we alluded to earlier of, of you know, COVID could very well be exacerbating some of those educational disparities that have, have plagued us long before COVID. And I think the missingness points to some uh, unknowns still, right? We may be missing data from the, those very populations that we, we uh, continue to struggle connecting with. Um, so that that is a, a definitely a, a contextual finding that I want to make sure makes makes the cut here. Absolutely, absolutely, and we'll dig into this in a little bit more detail. All of this because um, this is great. You just summed that up perfectly. Um, first, uh, before we kind of dig into that, you tested both um, in person, obviously within schools, and then you also did remote testing too. And I know you tried to analyze you analyzed that, and you found that there, there wasn't a difference. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I know people would maybe think. If kids are testing at home and the um, circumstances are different, then how are you how are you ensuring that the test is reliable if they're testing at home versus testing in school? Yeah, and that is a, a fair caution, and I'll, I'll get in the weeds a little bit, but please feel free to, to ask additional questions. And so be before we embarked on this, there were um, a couple analyses that we did first, and one was this comparability study. And we had done a little bit of testing in the spring, but not to scale in a, a few districts, but they, you know, kind of had things ready to, to roll already. They, kids had one-to-one -one devices. They were able to proctor really carefully. And so it was kind of the best case scenario. So knowing that we sort of did this national big experiment with a lot of our kids testing remotely, we really wanted to 
to dig into that data and make sure that they were comparable uh, this fall, whether they were remote in person. So we did that a couple different ways. And there were lessons that we did learn in those pilots in the spring that have, I think, helped that transition. And I can speak to those a bit too. So we're really trying to simulate for most kids um, in-person testing environment. So their teacher would be on Zoom or Google Classroom or whatever platform they have. And there's video ideally with these kids and they can help them, you know, whether they're going rapidly guessing too fast on it in the assessment, there can be a proctor notification that, you know, then Ms. Jones can go and say, hey, Jimmy, it's really important you give your best effort. This isn't graded, you know, just to get an idea of what you know in math. And, and so we can make sure we're getting the resources and, and preparing you to, to you know, for the, the material that you're best equipped for. And so those kinds of things really help um, you know, kind of simulate the real in-person environment where you would have someone actually making sure that, you know, parents aren't supporting maybe, you know, coming on the technology and staying on a little longer, best intention or, or not, right, to do that. And so we've set those conditions or those proctor uh, kind of specifications and work to modify um, our proctor prompts and, and really speaking to what the purpose of the test is, right, that this is low stakes, this isn't graded, that you take your time, it's not a time test, we're just trying to make sure that we have an idea of what you know in this area to kind of lessen the, the anxiety that kids may have. So those are some of the kind of steps that we took heading into the fall. So then in fall, we get, you know, all this data. Some are hybrid, some are in person, some are remote. And we're trying to make sense and, and make sure that there's some comparability. So we have some psychometricians on staff who dug in a bit on kind of the assessment itself. So looked at things like a diff analysis, looked at the performance of, of the assessments themselves. We also had some colleagues that looked at student engagement. So how long a kid was spending on an item or on the assessment itself. So, you know, are they spending a lot more or a lot less time than we would typically experience? So these would all be kind of red flags that the conditions were different. Uh, and, and so we also had things like rapid guessing flags. And so these were all ways to, to look at. And then the scores themselves, are they, you know, as a kid that's at the 40th percentile, now, now all of a sudden at the 99th percentile. So kind of jumping two or more quintiles would all, these would all be kind of signs that, that the conditions are not similar. And so we did these uh, across our, our K3 uh, as our K2 assessment as well as our third through eight assessment. And we were finding that, for, especially for the older kids, they were really comparable. Um, so that gave us a, a lot of hope. And we did this for the subset of the sample. So we, we took a group of schools at the time of reopening that were fully in person or those that were fully remote, knowing that there's still little caveats in that most fully in person still offer some options for, for remote, for example, or remote schooling. So not every kid, but majority of the kids with the, these full options. Options. They weren't necessarily hybrid options or, or unknown. And so in that subset of in-person testers and, and remote testers, they were very comparable in all these dimensions of engagement, duration, uh, item functioning, and, and score comparability. I'll say at the younger ages that that was less the case. And so we right. were seeing just a lot more noise in the K, uh, K1 grades. And, you know, if, if you've been an educator, it's not all that surprising. It's um, there's a lot more help that parents need to do in those younger ages, uh, right. you know, logging in, attention, um, you know, all, all of those. And so we purposely excluded uh, the K2 data for that reason, um, because there was more noise in the, the remote setting. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's great. Thanks for that. Um, so the top line here, and again, um, your caveat's very, very important about uh, different student characteristics in terms of performance. But, but to me, the top line piece out of this is that for a certain group of students, a very large group of students, it didn't appear to impact their reading, um, whether they were remote or in person. Um, and even the shutdown in the spring doesn't seem to have had a significant impact on their learning. Uh, is that fair to say? Yeah, you know, I think that caveat's a big one, right? We could be right. um, missing Correct. some of this, but yeah, I, I think there is some, some, you know, I guess the, I guess the, the headline here would be there's some optimism in the sense that for a good part of our our kiddos that we have information on, they are performing and reading relatively similar that we would see under normal conditions, and that you know that's a testimony I think to what teachers are doing and and the supports they can provide, what parents are doing, and and thinking differently about those um, you know the breaks and the summertime off. Um, you know, kind of continuing reading opportunities for their kids. So the gap, because I think that's right. Obviously, the teachers have been heroic, and and the leaders have been heroic throughout this uh, whole obviously uh, tumultuous period. But um, the math decline, the five to ten in math, um, and I know it's not a decline, right? They just they grew. They just didn't grow to the point um, that like the reading grew. But um, does that also speak to the fact that that supplementing reading instruction at home, if you're a parent um, and your your child's learning remotely, um, is kind of an easier lift, like giving them a book and making sure they're doing some independent reading versus math instruction, which might be more complex? Is it something, and I guess what I'm trying to get at, and again, I know you're just collecting the data and doing the research, so I'm asking you to speculate a little bit, but is it partly perhaps the home environment um, being more conducive to perhaps uh, supplementing that reading um, with a child versus math. Yeah, I mean, this is a little bit outside of my lane, so I'll, I'll, I'll attempt to make an educated uh, response for you. Um, but, you know, this does parallel what we're seeing in other types of closures. And so, you know, when we think about those inclement weather patterns or teacher strikes or uh, the summer months off, we see math takes a bigger hit than reading. And so, you know, to your point, is it the home environment that's as conducive? It's probably a few things. Like, you know, one, um, math is pretty sequential in nature. So you need to have a solid grasp of addition and subtraction before you can multiply and divide. And so there is a dependency that, you know, exists in reading, but maybe not as uh, kind of systematic as that we would see in mathematics of, of kind of that um, sequential nature that we really need to master one concept before we move on to the higher level. Um, Two, you know, I think it's easier just in our, our, our everyday lives to keep fluent in reading. You, we read, you see closed captioning, you read signs, you read a cooking, you know, recipe as you're cooking. So we are continuing as adults and, and you know, same thing with a foreign language. If you're not using it, you can lose it. And I think for kids, math is something that we have to be a bit more intentional, whether you're a formal educator or a, a parent. And so it's a bit I can speak from my own background as a parent. It's harder for me to do that. I can require my kid to read for 30 minutes in the summer, you know, on, on days, but it's harder for me to set up a 30 minute math activity with the same intentionality. And so I think that, you know, that's not so much a criticism of the home of the, it's a, it's a more complicated subject and it may be more difficult in some ways to teach it remotely. So I think all of these things are, are, you know, uh, I guess it suggests evidence that can inform our decisions to, you know, from policy to recommendations in the classroom for teachers to also for parents and caregivers of how to support that math seems to be being impacted more. And we can do something about that. You know, this is this is mile one in a marathon and we can be more intentional with with our resources in mathematics moving forward. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's great. And that was kind of what I was getting at is that 
is it an easier is an easier supplement for a parent at home? You know, the kind of the average parent at home. Um, and again, I, I know that's speculation. It's not not necessarily in the data. Um, let's talk about this the the caveat because I think that's that is the big piece. And and I know just from my own personal perspective, it's it's what I worry about most are, are the are the kids who don't have access to technology or the lower income population, those who traditionally struggle in school, um, not having access and what that does to them over the long term. Um, so, cause there was also a piece, um, that there were some declines even in reading that were disproportionate among Hispanic and black students in the upper elementary grades. So there was some data, um, to that effect as well, but uh, so you can speak to that, but I guess the bigger question is this 25% of students who dropped. Um, are, are there thoughts on on that that number um, in just terms of access versus moving versus just not choosing not to test, maybe? Yeah, that's, a, that's really good, and I appreciate the opportunity to kind of dig in a bit deeper there. You know, so we are seeing some of those differences emerge. I'm, I'm glad you read it with that level of detail. So we did have some differences in, in racial and ethnic groups in, in the reading in those upper elementary grades. Um, but coupled with the missingness, we also didn't want to overstate or understate really the, the equity implications here. And so we're, we, it became one of our primary findings, even though it was a unknown or, or a dot, dot, dot to be continued. Um, and it wasn't a footnote. It's not an additional. Like, we really believe that this equity question is, is very important. And so I'll try to kind of um, speak as a researcher, but also speak, you know, more kind of the, the racial and ethnic and social justice activism side, because um, I think they're, they're important here. So, you know, on the one hand, what do these mean for kind of our estimates? And we can do upper bounds and lower bounds and do some modeling. But I think, you're, you know, if I'm, I'm hearing your question, it, it parallels my own uh, kind of moral compass, if you will. And that's that these are missing kids. And we don't know why. We don't know if they're just missing from our assessment data, if they are, you know, not able to log in every day. Maybe they're sharing a device at home. So they're sharing it with a sibling. Or kind of worst case, they're not enrolled in any school. Uh, and and so I think there is this greater, you know, we know that the the pandemic is impacting differently across communities and economically, it's, it's, it's impacting um, folks in the public health different. And we also know that, you know, these are more likely to be poor and black and brown communities. And there's a huge, I think, uh, moral imperative here on what this means in the education space. And so while I think we are one piece of kind of that data puzzle and an important one, we're not, a, we're definitely not the whole tapestry. And so how can we bring things like our social emotional learning measures, what about enrollment rates, right? We're seeing, especially in some of our bigger urban systems, significant declines in, in what we would normally expect kids to, to show up in. And how did we used to, you know, we used to measure that kind of bottoms and seats, if you will, right? And now I think it's, it's more difficult to do that remotely. Is it turning in an assignment once a week? Is it logging in every day? Is it making two-way communication with teachers? And I just think we have to be more creative in how, how we're figuring out how to track those kids. And it's probably a healthy look, right, of thinking about how that data can be brought to bear here. Um, but then the question is, well, where, how do we go find those missing kids and, and where are they and how can we get them reconnected and reengaged in school? And, you know, as they get older, that's even more critical when it comes to high school graduation and, and preparedness for, for career and, and college. So, um, Again, I you know I, I think this is a piece, but it's also like the missing piece of the puzzle, um, and and a really really important one uh, that we hope to to continue to shed light on. But we're one piece of that tapestry. That's great, and you, and you got into another question I was going to ask about what other kind of data should we be looking for in, in addition to just assessment data in terms of performance. Um, 
and you talked about SEL or enrollment. Um, I, I, I want to get into another assessment question, but I guess, and again, maybe I'm going to have you speculate in an area that's not necessarily right up your alley, but, but does the research that you found so far, what you've seen in these results and even things that maybe you've seen just in general, does it speak at all about change that we should be doing in schools post COVID? Are there, are there learnings that we're getting now um, and saying, you know, we shouldn't lose this. We should actually hold on to this because even after we get back to quote unquote normal, um, there's some, some key pieces that are really um, surfacing through this kind of tumultuous process that we should capture and keep because it's effective in terms of how we educate kids and, and um, all kids. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that question. I, I don't know if you've had a chance to ever hear um, uh, Dr. Runcie, who's a superintendent down in Broward County. Hmm. Uh, he, I happened to be on a webinar with him a, a month or two ago, and he made a comment like, never never waste a good crisis or never let a good crisis go to waste. Right. And I thought that was really well said. And you know, to your point, what can we learn? And and maybe we're seeing innovation that was on a long runway that now is shortened, right? And so there could be some real purposefulness, I think, in the moment. A, a couple of those, I would say, silver linings that I think I, I've seen, at least in my time or with the districts that we're working with. Um, one, I'd say, is the intentionality into to bridging the homeschool divide. There's just been so much effort, both on the school's part of reaching out to families and caregivers, but also the other way of parents trying to understand and, and appreciate what teachers are doing or trying to support at home. And that's now in multiple language and different apps that are able to connect to families and tell you when assignments are in or notes from teachers or to schedule conferences. And so there, I hope that's something that stays, right? Like the, the, this kind of effort to bridge families and not just once a year or twice a year at, at you know, parent teacher conferences or back to school night. This is timely in real time data and real time information to, to really support those kids um, and also kind of serve as early warning systems. If we don't see if a kid hasn't turned anything in in a week, we can send notifications. Right. And we can do these virtual home visits in different ways that we've done. So technology, I think, has allowed for more um, intentionality in, in the way that we're reaching communities and, and family members. So I think that's a, a silver lining. Yeah. Um, I also think, you know, this is a time and we're you know, thinking about resources and we can use evidence uh, to really inform those decisions, but also, you know, so things like policy and, and funding formulas, for example. So one of my fears is that so much is going to have to be demanded of teachers of systems. And this is a, a much bigger pandemic than just education and just on the, the shoulders of our teachers and educators. So how can we rally to support, you know, out of school time or community based organizations or the faith based sector, or boys and girls club? open resources, open education resources. It's going to take kind of an all hands on deck effort to support these kids to hopefully, you know, bounce back from probably the most significant, you know, event in our, our lifetime. And so, you know, we also have things like enrollments that are tied to funding formulas and, those are going to be really misaligned potentially in the next year. So you think about LA or Chicago or DC or these places that are seeing big swings in their enrollment rates. And those very kids who are likely not currently enrolled may very well likely be back in the next year and are probably those that are going to be the ones that need the most support to catch up. And so we're essentially going to ask those same communities with the biggest swings to do more with less, right? And it's just, so I think we can be, and we can be proactive in, you know, freezing or reevaluating those funding formulas, for instance. We can also think about the support that it's going to take, not just in our educational sectors, but out of school time, our social services, uh, and, you know, what are we bringing to bear there? 
Yeah. And that was uh, one of your considerations and recommendations at the end um, is about additional funds really for the pandemic and the pandemic response. But it almost sounds like that would be an advocate. That'd be an advocacy position as well, that um, that additional dollars are going to be needed in order to kind of uh, mitigate some of the, the losses that these kids have experienced. And so being thoughtful about that. And of course, it's a time of, of um, you know, uh, of low fund, you know, low budgets and, 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 and all those kind of challenges every state governments and local governments are experiencing. But but I imagine um, that's something, too, that that uh, needs to be thought through very carefully because additional funds aren't just needed to for the pandemic response, but also in the next three to five years, if you have these kids coming who have, who've, you know, had, had losses over the course of this period. Yeah. You know, I'd say that the final piece that I am kind of the most excited about is that we're providing, we're able to have kind of real time data and real time experimenting in ways that we never would have before. And so, you know, we're seeing creativity in the charter space, in the Catholic space, in homeschooling. And I hope we can really leverage those learnings in different sectors for all kids, right? And so I, I, I am um, kind of, I wouldn't consider myself an internal optimistic, I'm more probably a, a, a pragmatist, but I also think that real-time data can inform ways in, in, in a rapid sequence than would normally take five to 10 years in, in kind of typical education um, you know, timelines that we can, we can really bring to bear. And there's a creativity uh, in some of these, these sectors that I think are, is gonna be really fascinating to watch. Yeah, I, I tend to get blamed for being an a, an optimist, so I can be the optimistic one. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one one kind of I don't know. One last question, if there's, but um, but um, they just I don't know if they've announced it officially, but I know there's um, um, kind of bipartisan agreement that to to suspend the NAEP assessment for the for this year, the you know kind of the nation's report card. Um, we just got the results uh, a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago um, from last year, and um, and I guess they want to suspend it just because of the COVID disruption. And and I guess I understand it from from one perspective, but I'm curious, especially you as a as kind of a researcher and thinking about this from an assessment data perspective, what are your thoughts on that? Because in some ways, I'd love to see that data and really kind of have a, a an, even if it's a brutal reality, I'd love to know what that reality is uh, in terms of, of, of that assessment? Yeah, I mean, there's always these trade-offs and we have to think about what is the purpose of these various assessments. And right now, you know, instructional time is so fragile. And so I get kind of the reluctance to test kids kind of no matter what, right? Whether that's summative, whether that's NAEP, whether that's interim. And I, so that that is very precious, I, I understand. I also think, you know, kind of flying blind is is a worse case scenario than that. So you know, when we think about assessment, are we trying to understand kind of these national trends? And NAEP really is trying to get kind of consistent, the, the, the dollar to dollar, like the real-time dollar, right, from, you know, 40 years ago to today or, or 10 years ago to understand how we're weathering in, in these uh, kind of core subjects. And there's a ton behind how they nationally sample. And, and so we, it really is the kind of gold or platinum standard for, for measuring growth over time or, or cross-sectional over time. Um, but there's also a lot that goes into that. They're very consistent. Their, their implementation is, is very consistent across sites. And so given the unknown heading into the spring, 
there's probably a lot of considerations going into postponing that when when we're anything but normal um, in this kind of home stretch of COVID. So I'm imagining there's a, a lot of factors that went into that tough decision. Um, as a researcher and as a researcher that hopefully, you know, wants data into the very hands of the people that can evoke change. So I really think this is a chance to kind of reclaim it for educators and students to know where they are kind of compared to normal scenario, how they've compared to their own performance over time, and also hopefully to, to really drive what I need to know next in math or what I'm ready to learn next in reading. Um, that That's a hope that I hope, you know, that a that the data can be repurposed and reclaimed in really meaningful and instructional ways as we can kind of weather the storm remotely or in person. Um, and so, you know, when, we, when we're evaluating these different assessment systems, it's also important to kind of know what is the intent of them and, and um, what is the purpose of the return on investment given the, the scenario. That's great. Beth, is there anything else I didn't ask about the report or something you want to share and make sure you're communicating um, about the research? No, the other, you know, I guess the only other piece, and I don't want to get too political um, or, or my organization might get mad at me, but <laughs> <laughs> I do think, you know, when we're talking about assessment and kind of that accountability, it's a chance to also decouple uh, a bit, right? So this idea of reclaiming data for, for the intended use. Um, and when we, we can make decisions at the district about where we are advocating resources, and maybe that means double dose math in some places or additional tutoring supports in, in certain subject areas that seem to be weathering this, we can make those real time decisions. And also, you know, for some of these big systems that are, are you know, catering to a variety of needs and, and a variety of poverty levels, for instance, across their system, they can be intentional about where they're allocating resources. So I'm hopeful that it, it can be used really to make informed uh, and evidence-based um, decision, you know, in the near term as, as well as the long term. Um, but as Andrew Ho, you know, who's an economist out of Harvard often says, this is a mile one in the marathon, you know, and, and so this is only one measure and, and it was the fall measure of, of what we have saw. I do think it can inform how we run the race in mile two and mile three and mile four. So my greatest hope is that, you know, the data that we brought to bear this fall and will hopefully continue to, to bring to, to the national stage here helps us make better choices of, of running a, a better race collectively. I, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I worry about the politics getting in the way of that in some ways in that we want to be able to say, this is, this is where we are and that's okay. Let's see everything as a baseline and how do we grow and get better from where we are versus punitive or thinking about it in some way other than, than, uh, obviously doing what's best for kids in the classroom. So, um, Dr. Beth Tarasawa, thank you so much for your research, uh, first and foremost, and for this report. And I know it's going to um, NWEA will be continuing to do this uh, uh, in the future. I know there are other research uh, coming out too from different entities, so we're excited to kind of see that and, and learn from it. And again, I I think we're um, we're of that same mindset that it's a tragedy this this whole period in our, our history. But but if we can learn things from it about how to do better in schools and how to how to do better by kids, then I think that could be a, a kind of silver lining um, out of this dark dark period that we've been through. So, uh, Beth, thanks so much. Thank you. This is Kevin Baxter for NCEA Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us, and we will see you next time. God bless. Mm -hmm.